Matthew 21, verses 1 to 17. King Jesus, we need you. Would you agree? Would you agree that the world today needs good and wise leadership? Better and wiser than our human leaders today are able to provide. Would you agree that we personally need good and wise leadership? I know that I do. I look at the problems in the world today that concern me, problems like the pandemic, like the bitter divide in politics, the violence, the screaming, the bitterly opposed perspectives which seem to be talking past each other more than they're talking to each other. On the one hand, there's those who don't seem to care about the injustices and suffering and brokenness in the world, or they won't even admit that those are real problems that should concern us. And on the other hand are those who care a lot, but don't seem to have the wisdom to actually solve these problems in a way which doesn't cause more problems in the process. And where's the church in all of this? I'm very concerned that the church is losing its way that we're putting more hope in and giving more allegiance to politics than to the way that Jesus taught us and that we're loving our country more than we're loving our Lord. And so what should I do about it? As a citizen of this country who who cares about it and as a representative of Jesus ordained to the ministry of the gospel, how do I work for what I think is right? And how do I do it when I am a very weak and flawed human being myself? King Jesus, I need you. King Jesus, we need you. That's what the crowds were saying too in the passage we're looking at this morning as Jesus entered into Jerusalem as its king on a donkey and the crowds were welcoming him with palm branches and shouts of alleluia. They needed a good and wise leader, too. After all, they had suffered so much and for so long. For almost 600 years, more often than not, God's people had been at the mercy of powerful and often hostile empires. Most recently, it had been the Romans with their crushing taxation and their human rights violations and their parasitic exploitation of local economies, and their callous disregard for Jewish lives, and their repression of religious freedom, and their promotion of godless morals. And so the crowds that day were crying out, King Jesus, we need you. We need good and wise leadership. We need you to save us from Rome and from whatever is holding God back from delivering us as God rescued us so long ago when Moses led us out of Egypt to freedom. And in fact, Moses and the exodus from Egypt was very much on the minds of of people on that day when Jesus entered Jerusalem. After all, they were all there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Passover was the biggest pilgrim holiday of the year. And It was the time when Jerusalem at that time would swell in number to perhaps six times its normal population to remember and to celebrate a God who had once before rescued them from oppression and set them free. 
And now here comes Jesus and the crowds are rejoicing. We need you, King Jesus. Notice as we look at this passage, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he is entering as its king. And this is a big change for Jesus. If you know his story, Jesus spent most of his public life trying to hush up who he was. He'd heal someone and he'd say, don't tell anyone. Peter would declare that Jesus was the Messiah, Israel's rightful king. And Jesus would say, yes, good Peter, but don't tell anyone yet. But notice the change now. All of a sudden, now that Jesus has gotten to Jerusalem, he suddenly comes claiming to be king. We see this in four ways. First, notice how Jesus enters. Not walking. Usually Jesus walked everywhere. Everyone did back then unless they were very wealthy. And Jesus had no doubt walked the hundred or so miles from his home in Galilee down to Jerusalem. But here at the very end of the trip, for the last few miles into the city, suddenly Jesus commandeers a donkey to ride on. Why? To make a grand entrance, to say something about himself. And Matthew, who's telling us this story, gives us a lot of info about what Jesus wants to say about himself. So second, there's this prophecy from the book of Zechariah in verse 5. See, your king comes, gentle and riding on a donkey. Riding on our donkey. In, in our day of motorcades in Air Force One, this doesn't mean much to us, but it meant a lot to the Jews of that time. Because you see, Jewish kings rode on donkeys. For example, when David's son Solomon, the original king of David, was crowned king, how did he travel to his coronation? Riding on a donkey. First Kings chapter 1. To ride into Jerusalem on a donkey was to say, I'm a son of David. I'm a king of, uh, like David, of God's people. And third, that's how those with him treat him, treat Jesus. They treat him as a king. They take off their coats. They put them over the donkeys. They lay other coats on the ground beneath the donkey's feet, like you would do for royalty. And what do they call out as Jesus makes this intentionally grand entrance into Jerusalem? They call out, Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David, again, this is a kingly title. Then fourth, even the animals Jesus chooses speak to his royalty. Matthew goes to great lengths to awkwardly explain that there are actually two animals involved. A mother donkey and her young colt, which Jesus actually rode and which had never been ridden before. Luke confirms that detail in, in his gospel account. Thus, the need for the cult to have its mother by its side to keep it calm for this first ordeal of being ridden. Guess what? Only kings had the prerogative to take a mount, to have a mount that no one had ever ridden. Culturally, it was a sign of their unique status and their royal prerogative. So in every way, Matthew is telling us, and Jesus is finally saying as he rides into Jerusalem, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the son of David that you've been waiting for. I am the king who is here to fulfill your longings. 
Jerusalem, holy city of God's people, look, your king comes to you, humble and riding on a donkey. Well, Jesus' entrance was big enough and loud enough to get noticed. Matthew tells us in verse 10, the whole city was stirred. It was shaken. And the people said, who is this? Who is this claiming to come to our city as its rightful king? And what will our current rulers do when they find out? And the simple country pilgrims who are entering with Jesus from the Galilean countryside where Jesus had done most of his ministry, who knew him and were already excited about him, they gave their answer to the people of Jerusalem. This is the prophet from Nazareth, which, by the way, isn't a contradiction. They're not saying he's a prophet, not a king. They're saying, rather, we know he's a great prophet. And now, wouldn't it be great if he was our king as well? Here he comes, the king we need. King Jesus, we need you. Well, guess what? Jesus may be the king we need, but is he the king we want? That's what I'd like to explore with you for the rest of our time this morning. Jesus is the king we need, but is he the king we want? Because notice how Jesus actually comes. Not triumphant and victorious, but lowly, gentle, and humble. In fact, if you look at verse 5, where Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9.9, and this goes right past most of us because we don't know Zechariah very well. But if you look back to our opening reflection from this morning, which was Zechariah 9.9, Matthew quotes it, and he skips a line. Here's how Zechariah actually reads. See, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious, gentle and riding on a donkey. Matthew leaves out the triumphant and victorious. He doesn't quote that part. Or depending on your translation, it might have just and victorious or righteous and victorious. But however your translation translates it, Matthew leaves it out. He just focuses us on the humble and gentle part. Why? Well, because that's how Jesus comes. Read ahead in the story, right? To, to what Jesus does in Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem not to conquer, but to suffer and to die. He comes as king, but what kind of king? He comes lowly, humbly gently. He has no army with him, right? Just a crowd of harmless pilgrims, of, of fellow pilgrims and peasants who've come to, for the festival. They're not armed with swords or spears. They're armed with palm branches. And yet this is how the king comes, to lay claim to his throne and to call for the allegiance of God's people and God's holy city. We also see Jesus' meekness and humility in, in what Jesus does next as he goes to the temple. This is what any king in that culture would do. When you entered a city to lay claim to that city and to assert your kingship over the city, you would go to the temple. 
Today, you'd go to the White House or you'd go to the Capitol. But in that culture, you went to the temple because there was no separation of church and state back then, just the opposite. It was the temple that was the home to the patron god of the city that gave the king legitimacy. And all the more so among God's people, the Jews, right? So Jesus enters the city as king and he goes to the temple. And what does he find there? A warm royal welcome? No, he, what he finds in God's house is, is not a spiritually hospitable place. What he finds in God's house troubles him, right? He says God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. But instead, it's become a den of robbers. And this word robbers, by the way, in Greek can also be translated bandits or rebels or insurrectionists. And den of robbers or den of rebels is a line from the book of Jeremiah. Again, so much we read in the New Testament assumes we know the old. Jesus is quoting here from a famous sermon that the prophet Jeremiah gave in Jeremiah chapter 7. A sermon where Jeremiah was warning God's people back then, back in Jeremiah's day, 600 years earlier, that they had come to the end of the line. God was about to punish them for their terrible hypocrisy, their oppression, their social injustice, their idolatry. And Jeremiah had said to the people back then, don't think this temple will save you. Don't think that because you have God's house here, that somehow God will protect your city on account of his house. No, far from it, because you've made a mockery of God in this house. And so when the empire of Babylon, which was then threatening them, comes and takes the city, Jeremiah warned, it will be because God sent them. Because this temple isn't God's house anymore. It's a den of robbers, a den of rebels. That's what you are, you who worship at this temple, Jeremiah had said. And boy, you don't want God's spokesman saying this to you. And yet here is Jesus saying it again as God's people or, or about God's people in God's house. So what does Jesus do? He comes on behalf of God to God's house where he should be welcomed and acclaimed as king. But that house is a den of robbers. It's a den of rebels. So what does Jesus do? He gives them one last vivid experiential warning. He turns over their tables, literally. He says, wise up, shape up, or you're in big trouble. God will destroy the city again, like he did last time when you ignored Jeremiah's warning. But here's the weak, humble part. Let's notice the scale of what Jesus is doing here. Let's put this in perspective. The temple area was huge. It was enormous. It was the size of around 30 football fields, end to end and side to side. Can you imagine how big that is? Huge. And at the Passover time, there are literally tens of thousands of people milling around this area. And so how big of a stir did one man make turning over some, some tables? Again, Jesus has no army with him. 
He's not seizing control of the temple. He's not wrestling it from the control of the security forces who patrolled it. No, he's one guy in this huge complex turning over some tables, six football fields away from you, maybe, if you're standing there. How long do you think this act of protest lasted? A few hours until it was back to business as usual? What Jesus is doing here isn't an armed takeover or a reformation. It's rather a prophetic act, a plea, a warning. And again, it's delivered in weakness, not in power. Just one passionate man acting by himself, a voice crying in a wilderness of religious bustle and noise. What kind of king is Jesus? And then look what happens next, verse 14. <clears throat> the blind and the lame came to Jesus and he healed them. The blind and the lame, not exactly the VIPs of the city welcoming Jesus as king. And this says plenty at face value, but it says even more if you know your Old Testament again. Because the blind and the lame are a group who have a long relationship with the Jerusalem temple, as any Jew would know. Because years before, when King David first had wanted to conquer the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, the Jebusites had taunted David. They had humiliated him by saying, we're so well fortified here that even the blind and the lame could keep you out of our city. Well, of course, David had the last laugh, and he managed to conquer the city anyway. And as a result, for a while, the blind and the lame were not allowed into the temple when it was built, in memory of the taunts of David's enemies. But now, here they are again, the blind and the lame, and now they come to the son of David, to the Davidic king, and they rally to him, and he heals them. What kind of king is Jesus? A son of David, but one who now isn't excluding the blind and the lame. No, they are actually the ones who are rallying to him, and he's receiving them and healing them as their king. Look who else is rallying to Jesus. The children. Verse 15. The children are shouting in the temple courts that Jesus is king. Hosanna to the son of David. So our king has peasants and pilgrims from Galilee waving palm branches. He's got the blind and the lame. He's got children, but he's got no army. What kind of king is he? What about anyone who matters? What about the leadership of the city? How do they feel about this king? Will they welcome him? Will they recognize him as king? Well, in verse 15, they finally appear. And it's not to welcome him, is it? It's rather to oppose him. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked Jesus. They're saying you're king. They're saying you're Messiah. No, you're not. 
Make them stop. You are not our king. Far from it. Watch your step. That's how the people in charge of God's temple, that's how the leadership of the city replies. And how does Jesus respond to them? Verse 16, quoting Psalm 8. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Jesus is saying, I am the king. I'm the Psalm 8 kind of king. The kind of king who gets his praise and his acclaim from babies and little kids, not from important people. The kind of king who goes on to be rejected and arrested by the leaders of the capital city and mocked and abused and stripped naked and beaten and cruelly strung up on a cross to die. He's not the kind of king we want, is he? But here's the challenge. Could he be the kind of king we need? Today, more than ever, we need good leadership, don't we? And we have a picture in our mind of what kind of leader we want. But is he the kind of leader we actually need or she? So question, are you ready to follow Jesus for the kind of king he actually is? Are you ready to go along with his way of being king and his way of bringing the kingdom? Notice how he brings it. Not by coercion. Not by making other people follow his morality. He's got no army. He's got no political clout. His weapons are only words spoken from a place of weakness. Words and works of kindness, healing the hurting, setting free the broken, welcoming children. He does speak the truth forcefully, doesn't he? He overturns tables, but he doesn't do it from a position of strength, but rather from a place of weakness, from a place of vulnerability. Yes, he claims to be the king, Yes, he tells off the powers that be. He speaks the truth, but without an army to back him up, without a place of protection to flee to, flee to if it doesn't go down well. He tells the, power, the powers the truth, and then he willingly faces the consequences of how they respond. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't protect himself. He lets them have the power and the final word. He lets them have freedom to decide for themselves which way they'll choose. That's the kind of king Jesus is. That's the way his kingdom comes. And he says, if we want to follow him, we must be like him. We must take up our crosses and follow him. We must love our enemies too. We must be meek. We must become like little children. And he promises that as crazy as that seems, it's what will win in the end. Not because it makes sense or because it's a sound strategy 
but because it's how God has ordained the coming of his kingdom and the renewal of the world to work. And we're to trust in faith that God will make it work in the end as his power is made perfect in our weakness. Next Sunday, we'll celebrate how God does just that, right? Resurrection Sunday. We'll celebrate that God miraculously brings power and victory out of weakness and death. But in the meantime, what does it mean to follow the kind of king that Jesus is? Not the king we want, but the king we need. This is hard for us as Americans to figure out because we have such a history of being a Christian nation and being successful as a nation and having Christianity tied up with that power and that success. So we can learn a lot from the church in other times and other places where weakness was their only option. And where they faced more like the kind of opposition that Jesus faced. So take, for example, the Church of Poland under communism. Chuck Colson, uh, who worked in uh, Richard Nixon's administration and knew what it was like to live in the halls of power. Colson later came to Christ and he devoted the later part of his life, among other things, to serving and to highlighting how the church could be faithful to Jesus in places of weakness, in places like prisons where Colson started a ministry. One of the things Colson did in his writings was to trace how the church in the communist world had been faithful to Jesus despite persecution, despite weakness, and how God eventually used this weak church to bring down communism. Another preacher, Daryl Johnson, summarizes some of Colson's research nicely in his book, It Is Finished. Johnson tells how Coulson traced it all back to a town in Poland called Noahata. Noahata, it means new town. And it was designed by the communists as a center for workers who were to make up the backbone of the new Poland. Coulson describes this ideal town as mammoth steelworks and ugly chimneys spewing smoke and sulfuric fumes into the sky. Curiously, when Noahata was built, the communists left an open square in the town center, and the workers requested that a church be built there. The communists responded, a church? Why a church? This is a new world. Besides, haven't we communists given you you poles, everything you need? Now get back to work. But several young Christians and a priest nailed together two rugged beams and pounded the timber cross they had built into the ground where they wanted the church to be in the middle of that empty square. And night after night, people began to gather around that cross to worship. And night after night, the authorities showed up and retaliated with water cannons, chasing the people away and tearing down the cross. But morning after morning, the cross would reappear. By night, the people would gather again to worship, and again, they were chased away. And Coulson suggests that this struggle, which which went on day after day, week after week, symbolized what was beginning to happen all over Eastern Europe 
and Russia during the time of communism. Believers alarmed by the power of evil did not develop a fortress mentality and hide away in fear, but they also didn't have the power to coerce others into what they saw as God's way. So what did they do? They followed their king, Jesus, in the way of the cross and the way of weakness. See, your king comes to you, humble, gentle, riding on a donkey. That's the kind of king we need. In the crazy and uncertain days we're living in in this country, that's the kind of king we in the church desperately need to worship and to learn to follow. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. King Jesus, we need you. We look around at the world today, and I think everyone is increasingly realizing that we need help as a nation. I pray, Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see afresh the kind of king you are, the kind of leadership you offer, and what it means for us to follow you, to be like you, and to represent you in today's world. Increase our faith as we go through this next week, as we remember your death on Friday, your resurrection on Sunday, and how you alone can bring power out of weakness and victory out of defeat. Give us faith so that we will have the courage and the passion to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.